Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which is available now, and The Wellness Trap, which comes out on April 25th. You can learn more and pre-order the book at christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. Welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is Casey Guerin, award-winning health journalist and author of It's Probably Nothing. We discuss how to deal with health anxiety, strategies for recognizing and avoiding wellness misinformation online, how to develop greater media literacy and deal with fear-mongering nutrition headlines, and lots more. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you in just a moment. Before I do, a few quick announcements. This episode is brought to you by my upcoming book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is available for pre-order now. The book is deeply personal to me as someone with a host of chronic health conditions that wellness culture constantly pushes me to quote-unquote fix with food, supplements, and various alternative practices that my reporting and research and my own experience have shown me are at best unproven and often downright dangerous. My hope with this book is to illuminate the damage wellness culture is causing and to explore how we can reimagine our collective relationship with well-being for the better. If any of that sounds interesting to you, I'd love it if you pre-ordered the book. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and pre-order for its release on April 25th. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap or ask for it at your favorite independent bookstore. And once you've pre-ordered, you can get a special bonus Q&A with me about the book by uploading your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. If you like this show and want to help support it, I'd be so grateful if you take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review it. You can do that wherever you're listening to this, and you can also get it as a newsletter in your inbox every other week, where you can either listen to the audio or read a full transcript or both. Subscribe to that at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Casey Guerin. So Casey, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you today. And I'd love to start right off by asking you to tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to do the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I am a writer, editor, author most recently. And right now I am the head of content at Wondermind, which is a mental health media company. And how I got into this, I actually got my start in magazines and women's magazines in print, actually, uh, right out of college. I always knew that I wanted to be writing in women's magazines. They just like fascinated me growing up. Uh, And then I ended up finding my 
niche in health editing and health writing. And that actually happened at my first job out of college at Cosmo. I was an editorial assistant and just kind of helping with a little bit of everything and really dove into the health section uh, because I always had my own questions answered in magazines in the health sections. So that definitely was where I was gravitating towards. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Every job after that, I would end up diving a little bit deeper into the health and wellness space. I went from Cosmo to Women's Health. From there, I went to BuzzFeed as their health editor. And then at Self Magazine, overseeing health and wellness. Again, there's a theme. (laughs) And eventually ended up writing my first book, which is a course around health and wellness, but really explores what it's like to be a health editor who also deals with health anxiety and a health editor's views on how to navigate all of those wellness messages that we're getting all the time, because I'm obviously, you know, understanding of how that content gets out there, but also I'm very familiar with how it can make you kind of go spiral a bit and go down some rabbit holes on online. Yeah. And I would love to get into that a little bit because you share in your book that you have a lot of health anxiety yourself. And I can totally relate to that too. And I think there's probably many health and wellness journalists out there actually who are attracted to the profession because of their own anxieties or their own health issues and concerns and kind of wanting to master that. I know that that was true for me, certainly. So I'm curious to hear about the role that health anxiety played for you in bringing you to this career and then also how it's affected your career as a health writer and editor? Yeah. I mean, I think it is one of those things that you see this in other professions too, right? Where people do gravitate towards professions where they have some either personal interest questions about it. I mean, I know I've heard psychologists say that you know you get into this profession because you are fascinated with you know what's going on in your own head. And I think for me, again, I was consumed with magazines growing up. I I loved women's magazines, teen magazines. And I felt like that's where I was getting a ton of my education on things like health and sex and dating and relationships and emotions. And so when I was looking into journalism schools, I I was also kind of gravitating towards the psychology departments too, because I realized a lot of these magazines are quoting psychologists, they're quoting doctors. Like I want to have some understanding of that. But I definitely think that my own personal health questions really got me into writing in the health sections at Cosmo. I mean, I know that I ended up just pitching a whole lot more for those sections because those pitches came easy. I had a lot of questions about my own health and body. And so, again, this was like 2011, 2012. We didn't have all you know the data that we have now on Google to see what people are searching, what people are clicking on. This was when I was working for the print magazine. It was a lot of times just like, what questions do you have? What are you and your friends talking about? So I think it. I ended up gravitating towards the health sections because I always had so many questions about my own health and my own body. And I wanted to be a part of creating content that kind of demystified that and not in a scary way because I was definitely guilty of, you know, I'd open up a article in a magazine or see something online and immediately think, oh, I have that, or I'm definitely going to die from that. And so I wanted to, of course, be part of the solution, not the problem. Like I didn't want to create content that made people think, oh my gosh, I have that. But I wanted to be part of creating content that made it a little less scary, which is a really fine line in creating that content. But 
that was, I think, what got me into it. What the health anxiety did for my career, I mean, I would say being a health journalist is not necessarily the job I would suggest to people who are already anxious about their own bodies because day in and day out, you're having to consume so many health headlines and so much health news. It's often things like whatever disease is trending or whatever disease is in the news, celebrity health scares, things like that, that you then just had to dive deep into and find out everything about it. And I would find myself putting together a package on whatever health condition or covering a story of a celebrity's health news and going down these rabbit holes and thinking, okay, do I have this? Could I have this? I have maybe one symptom. I probably have it. (laughs) And then that's the thing that I am panicking over. And, you know, of all the things that I thought I had, I don't think I ever really identified with being a hypochondriac, which is really interesting. And then one time I was editing a piece, uh, I think at BuzzFeed, about hypochondriasis and learned about, you know, how it's not actually in the DSM anymore and about how it's not necessarily people going to all these doctors all the time. Like there are different ways that it can present. And that kind of had the light bulb moment (laughs) for me where I realized, okay, maybe this has a name. Maybe, maybe this is a thing that I'm dealing with. So that's kind of what, what made me understand that health anxiety is more of a symptom of certain uh, mental health conditions and that it's something that we can experience kind of on a spectrum. So for me, it was definitely influencing the way that I showed up in my job, the way that I did my job. But it also, I think, made me hopefully you know, a more thoughtful and, and empathetic editor in how we covered certain things and, and the topics and the ways that we packaged content to make sure that it wasn't going to be really fear-mongery and you know, something that's going to keep someone up at night. That is so interesting. I, there's so many sort of tangents we could go off of that, but I'm I'm curious just with your reference to the DSM, like what you found in that, and sort of why. I know you mentioned in your book too that like the term hypochondriac is kind of stigmatizing that you know it's not something that's used these days, and like you said, it looks different now than maybe it did in the past, where people would go doctor shopping, and there are reasons for that too, even with people who don't have a lot of health anxiety, right? That like going from doctor to doctor is unfortunately part of the reality of our healthcare system in a lot of cases to try to find the care that you need for particular conditions, especially if you have something that's like undiagnosed or not well understood. So I'm curious like what you found in researching that in terms of mental health labels for health anxiety and how helpful they are or not. And kind of some of the reasons why people develop health anxiety. Yeah. I, when I was researching for my book, I found that, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what's the best way to even get into the topic of health anxiety, because it's obviously something that so many people experience and can relate to of that feeling of like, you read something, you think you have it, or you're Googling your symptoms late at night, or you're panicking about some weird symptom or mole or mark or pain or something But then there is obviously that spectrum there where you might be doing it more to an excessive or or a rational level. And so, you know, a lot of people think of that as being a hypochondriac, but that condition actually uh, hasn't been in the DSM since 2013. 
So in the fifth edition of the DSM, they replaced hypochondriasis with two different mental health conditions, illness, anxiety disorder, and somatic symptom disorder. And so the two are, are pretty related. There can be some overlap between the two illness, anxiety disorders more when you are afraid of developing or having a particular mental health condition. You may not have any of the symptoms. You may just you know, have this excessive worry about developing or having a condition. And that condition can change that you're worried about. Whereas somatic symptom disorder, it does require you to have some symptoms that are they could be part of a condition that you have been diagnosed with, but your level of concern or the level of worry that you have, how much it's consuming your day-to-day life and thoughts is a little bit more excessive than someone might assume with that, which again, you know, that's so vague and like subjective, but that's how it's outlined in the DSM. But this excessive concern and worry and just preoccupation with your health and your body is a symptom that can show up as part of other mental health conditions too. It's what I learned from various experts when I was interviewing people for the book. It could be a a facet of OCD. Uh, It could be a facet of just having generalized anxiety disorder, depression. You might just relate to this feeling of that preoccupation with your body or your health every once in a while. Like when we're dealing with the pandemic, like the past two years, I'm sure so many people can relate to really like honing in on certain symptoms and having that kind of consume your thoughts for the day. So yeah, I I think a lot of people think of it as being a hypochondriac, but I learned from uh, some of the experts that I talked to that it is a, was thought of as a pretty stigmatizing term. You know, people automatically assume that that meant that you are freaking out about these symptoms and you're going to all these doctors And there's just no basis to your concerns. And one, that's really harmful and uh, and stigmatizing because there could absolutely be, you know, validity to your concerns. And even if you don't have the thing that you are thinking that you have, again, the history of dismissing people's health concerns and and medical concerns runs deep in our society. So I, I think that that was also part of why that was so stigmatizing. But in terms of even just illness, anxiety disorder, the criteria there for being diagnosed, it actually is separated between care-seeking and uh, avoidant behavior. So some people might go from doctor to doctor and look for that reassurance, whereas others might present more an avoidant-type behavior. They might be avoiding the doctor because you don't want to get that fear confirmed. So you might still have that reassurance seeking, you're Googling your symptoms, you're focusing on it, you're trying to kind of check your your body for certain things, but then you might actually be avoiding care. And that was what I related more towards. And I think that's why I didn't relate to the term hypochondriac at first. So I think it's just an interesting, seems like, oh, it's all semantics, but it also, you know, just starts an interesting conversation about the way that we think about mental health conditions as being like these distinct categories that, you know, you have to check off all these boxes to fit into. Whereas health anxiety seems like one of those things that so many people can relate to. And to say that, you know, you have to check off all of these boxes to have this conversation around it just seems like it's kind of missing the point, you know? Totally. And I think especially in this day and age with the pandemic, like you said, I think that's ratcheted up so many people's health anxiety as well as 
you know, the difficulty of getting compassionate, competent care for so many reasons, right? For like larger bodied people, people of color, people who've been historically dismissed, you know, women being dismissed as quote unquote hysterical in the past or today, even still, you know, that term is used in certain corners. And that idea, even if it's not the terminology that's used, it's like that idea is still there that women are overblowing their symptoms or that their pain has somatic roots. And I think it could be so tricky talking about that, right? Because I'm someone who has many different health conditions, both physical and mental, one of which is PTSD. And that definitely can have some physical manifestations, anxiety, you know, also generalized anxiety disorder that can have some physical manifestations. And that can also increase my health anxiety, making me think that I have, you know, different diseases or that or like ratcheting up concern about symptoms that are maybe maybe a little bit more normative or symptoms that a lot of people might experience. But, you know, that heightened anxiety can take them to a level that feels really extreme. And so it is really complicated sort of sifting through like what is coming from health anxiety, what is coming from real sort of structural problems with the healthcare system, and what might be actually physically going on that needs to be addressed. Right. And I think that's where, you know, there is the, that disconnect. You know, there's not a ton of data on how many people, you know, the prevalence rates of health anxiety or even illness, anxiety disorder, and somatic symptom disorder, because so many people, if you're identifying with this, if you're struggling with this, you're probably going to a, a bunch of doctors, medical doctors, not necessarily a therapist, um, but also, you know, who who has the time and the resources and the money to be going to a therapist and saying, hey, I'm, I'm concerned with how much I'm Googling my symptoms. Like there are so many barriers to accessing good quality care that it's so hard to determine if the way that you are you know, questioning stuff going on with your body and either seeking care or avoiding care is quote unquote excessive or part of health anxiety, or if it is a byproduct of just, you know, your circumstances, if you don't have time to be dealing with this, if you haven't gotten compassionate care, if you've gotten very stigmatizing care, it's really hard. And I think it's something that providers should just really be aware of that, that fine line between, you know, explaining to a patient, how their mental state, their stress, their anxiety and other conditions, you know, can manifest in very real physical symptoms and negating, you know, what they're going through as just being in your head or, oh, that's just stress because, you know, having your concerns dismissed is certainly something that happens a lot. And, you know, disproportionately to women, disproportionately to people of color, so I think that, yeah, it's just a really fine line between what's excessive and what's not. But I think what I wanted to tackle with this book was just letting people realize that there is a name for this and that, you know, connecting it to the fact that we're presented with so many messages around our body and our health all the time, that it's just kind of no wonder that we stress out about it a little bit more and more lately. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to turn to that, you know, talking about the messages we get about our body and our health. On one hand, there's the the fear-mongering headlines that sort of amplify health anxiety for people. And then there's also, I mean, it's sort of not on the one hand on the other, but it, there's then there's also the misinformation, the rampant misinformation that we see online that circulates on social media. And there's research showing that misinformation 
spreads farther, faster, wider, deeper than the truth because the social media algorithms amplify things that have a sense of novelty or provoke a sense of moral outrage. And so misinformation kind of hits all those notes. Um, so I'm curious to, to know from your perspective, how should people navigate this online environment where, you know, we have all of this mis and disinformation flooding our system. We also have articles that may be accurate, but that have headlines that are fear-mongering or that sort of ratchet up the anxiety in a way that maybe isn't necessary or that, you know, there's there's so much subtlety, right? Because there's also reporting on on recent studies that just came out and they are technically correct. Like they're technically, you know, reporting some of the facts of the study, but they're missing a lot of context or they're drawing causal conclusions where none exist. And the research is really clear that it's like correlation and not causation. So, you know, how do people navigate this environment that can be so anxiety producing and fraught? Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, you listed a few really, really tricky parts of just like consuming media of these days. Like we are just inundated with so much information that it is really hard to decide, you know, kind of what sources to trust, but also how to, I don't know, which which ones you want to really go deep on and and see, okay, am I getting all of the context of this story? Like again, who has the time to go in and do that for every single story? But something that I I try to get across in my book is that you know, when it comes to content that is going to impact how you live your life, like changes that you're going to make to your life, your health, your body, things like that, it really does pay to do a little bit more digging and just to be a little bit more discerning about the content that you're letting in, the messages that you're getting exposed to, uh, and then just asking more questions when we're confronted with stuff like that. So something that I've heard from a lot of experts and I try to practice is having a short list of trusted sources that you go to for health information. So in the past two years, that's been really hard to do because obviously every brand you know, and every company organization, everything, you would be doing the disservice to not be talking about a reality in this pandemic. And so there's been everyone shouting whether it's advice or insights or, or theories or takeaways around how we should be living right now. So really drilling down into like a short list of trusted sources that you feel like that's who I trust for health information or for information about the pandemic or parenting or pregnancy or so on. So that could be you know whatever healthcare provider you have access to. Uh, it could be the CDC or your state health department for certain things. It could be a publication or two that has a strong track record on reporting on health or the pandemic or whatever topic you know you're looking for information on in a really responsible way like maybe they have beat reporters that really are thoughtful about their coverage of this topic but you know again understanding the limitations of those big organizations like the CDC you know any of those organizations that are setting those big guidelines for the masses understanding that that is for public health and not necessarily focused on all the personal use cases that you're going to come up with. So like you said, you might be saying, oh, I need to only tune into the CDC, but then you go to their site and you feel like, okay, well, my situation of this weekend and who I want to see and if I'm at risk and, or if I tested positive on this day, like my question isn't being answered. And that's a really frustrating spot to be in. And it, it can help, it can kind of contribute to you losing faith in 
the big organizations that you've been told to trust. So I do feel like having that short list of sources of information, especially around health information, is really helpful. I think there's also just so many things that you can do to be a little bit more discerning of the messages that you're getting. So some of the things that I say to should be kind of red flags uh, in my book would be things like if often a, a publication or an article or blogger or anyone on Twitter or anything often throws around the phrase research shows without actually showing you the peer-reviewed research. Um, I feel like we see that a lot with wellness fads, a lot with health information or health advice. But like, oh, this is evidence-based. This is research-backed, doctor-based. and uh, But you can't actually see that research. That would be a red flag. Or you see the research, like I've noticed this in some of the functional and integrative medicine spaces that I've been looking at lately for the book. They'll say studies have shown and link to one study that's like in 19 people or that's in rats or something. And it's kind of like, okay, is that you showing your research? Because that's also not, that research doesn't actually support that conclusion. Exactly. Yeah. And you had talked about this before, like correlation versus causation. So yes, look at like, click on that research, you know, do that digging and click on that research and see, you know, was it in mice? <laughs> was it um, an in vitro study? So like not really in people at all. Is it something that they found an association or a correlation, but not necessarily enough definitive research to say X causes Y? And is this one study that found something a little weird on, like you said, 19 people, but it goes against the broad body of evidence on this. And that's, I think, the same for people too. You know, we often see someone who maybe has really impressive credentials and they're saying something that's totally against the grain of the major medical organizations in a certain field. You know, when someone's in total opposition to the rest of those recommendations, I would just be a little wary because especially if they're promising like, this is it, this is the secret. I promise you the broader medical organizations would want you to know that secret too. We would all probably be out of something like this a whole lot faster if that were the case. So just kind of always asking, where is this information coming from? And to your point, like then asking how, like, show me your work. If X causes Y, like how? And I think you see that a lot with uh, things like supplements or other kind of wellness fads that, you know, something like celery juice or something that has purported a ton of benefits to like every health system in your body. And it has basically no barrier to entry. Like you just take this thing and everything is going to get better. I think the first question should be like, okay, how? <laughs> like if you can show the mechanism of action that would go, that would link, you know, how this is curing whatever condition or how it's lowering blood pressure, or how it's helping you sleep, like being able to show the work shouldn't be a high bar in the marketing strategy of stuff like this. So those are just a few of the tips, but there's so many. I mean, there's so many ways that we can be a little bit more discerning of this stuff, but I understand that again, we just don't often have the time or the resources and you shouldn't have to do all of this digging for every little thing. It should more be on the content creators and the people giving more airtime to these topics to be doing that research for you. So that's, again, why I just got so passionate about 
creating accessible, you know, responsible health content, because I just felt like the onus shouldn't be on the reader all the time, but it unfortunately is. So I think it's, it's worth understanding how to do a little bit more digging and to Google a little bit more smarter (laughs) around these topics to just kind of understand like where this content comes from. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so important. And I think I'm also so big on scientific bases and understanding the evidence behind things. And, you know, that (laughs) when you mentioned, like, if something goes in the face of like established medical research or, you know, the, the scientific positions of major organizations and stuff, I'm like, yes, that's me for most things, except for when it comes to like food and weight loss and diet advice, you know, not food per se, but weight loss and diet culture basically, you know, and I, I feel like I and many people in the intuitive eating space and sort of general anti-diet space, which really is, you know, a lot of people in the eating disorder community as well. And people who've done research around eating disorders, I think this is where some of this comes from, you know, this understanding that a lot of what is put out by the CDC about weight and weight loss and other major medical organizations is really problematic and doesn't address weight stigma, weight cycling, like the harms of those things that we see in a vast body of scientific research, doesn't address disordered eating, which is so rampant and which is often triggered by weight loss advice. And, you know, that there, when you kind of dig into like the politics of how the CDC guidelines on quote unquote healthy weight got developed, it's super messy and influenced by pharmaceutical industry money and, you know, pharmaceutical industry money specifically around like diet and weight loss drugs, you know, these people who are doing consulting for pharmaceutical companies on the development of diet and weight loss drugs were the people who were creating the guidelines and calling quote unquote obesity a disease, you know, that that whole thing of that label being applied to larger body size in 2013 against the American Medical Association's own committee's recommendations. You know, they had a committee researching whether that should that label should be applied to higher body weight, and the committee said no, and then the organization overruled it and labeled so-called obesity a disease anyway. So when you like look into that stuff, you know, I think it can be really frustrating and sort of make a lot of people, I think, wary of institutions like the CDC if they've, you know, if they've experienced weight stigma or if they are someone struggling with an eating disorder and weight loss advice has been really harmful to them. Like, I think seeing that stuff being pushed by an otherwise fairly trustworthy organization, I mean, I think some of their communication in the pandemic has been problematic as well. But, you know, it's messy. It can be messy to sort of discern. And, you know, from the outside, I think people looking in on me and some of my colleagues in the anti-diet space, dietitians, therapists, some doctors, um, some people in other professions, you know, like that we're putting out this information that's going against maybe this, the sort of larger body of the medical establishment. You know, I've had people say to me, like, well, how is anti-diet any different than anti-vax? Right. And like, oh gosh. (laughs) So, (laughs) which I mean, I have thoughts on, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts too on, on how to sort of determine like what is a valid area of scientific debate or disagreement within a field that's like based on valid evidence and what is something that's totally fringy or, 
you know, a wellness fad that isn't backed like like celery juice, right? A wellness fad that isn't backed by science. Where in that case, the guy who promotes celery juice literally says, like, there is no science. I was told by a spirit that this is <laughs> right. Know. Right. That's red flag number one, usually. Red flag, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's so tricky. I mean, I think, again, to your point, it really comes back to if people did know where those recommendations and guidelines around, you know, BMI, around weight, around terms like that, like, I think that they would be outraged to understand like how far back that goes. And often that was just like in a few old white men, like it, how like undiverse um, and how limited our research is that governs those guidelines and recommendations. So I think that that's kind of another example of, yes, if someone's going against the grain of established guidelines, that when you look into those guidelines, there's not a whole lot of, there's not really a leg to stand on with you know, the research that went into them. I think having a better understanding of where those recommendations come from, where the guidelines come from, uh, actually understanding the research that went into that and who the sample size was when this research was done. I think um, an example that I always come back to is like the birth control efficacy rates. That research was done so long ago and it doesn't seem to be like continued research every year. Like it to me feels like, yes, of course it's the same birth control method, but we're still using data from like 1990s. Like it just, I think a lot of people would be outraged when they see what research goes into the guidelines and recommendations that are coming from these big organizations. So it it does make you lose a little bit of faith in that. But I think, again, like understanding the limitation of when the organizations are doing something from a public health standpoint versus personal health standpoint. And then with something like weight, with something like diet culture, should we really be going to those big organizations and saying, yeah, like, tell me how to eat. Like, no, that shouldn't be the same for every person. (laughs) We shouldn't necessarily be taking their advice on that. So yeah. And and the parallel between, or not even parallel, I wouldn't even want to say that, but the note that you got about is is anti-diet, like anti-vax. Wow. I wouldn't even know where to respond to that other than again, like looking back at the research that you and your colleagues are going against in the anti-diet movement is to shed light on the limitations of that research. And so I think that that is where the healthy scientific debate comes in. If there are huge limitations of research that we've been overlooking for many years, we should be looking into that. We should, that should be a more transparent discussion, but then understanding that quote unquote, I did my own research, you know, is not the same as the broad studies, these peer, the large peer-reviewed studies on something isn't necessarily the same as, you know, someone Googling around. So I guess that would, that would be how I would respond to that, but it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. And I mean, I would also say like, I've, I've been thinking a lot about misinformation and the anti-vax movement for this new book and, one interesting distinction between like conspiracy theories and actual conspiracies that I've come across in the research, you know, people who have studied conspiracy theories and are experts on conspiracy theories have made this distinction between like the type of thinking that 
can uncover a genuine conspiracy versus the type of thinking that characterizes conspiracy theories. And they say that genuine conspiracies, which are things like, you know, Watergate or the Tuskegee experiment being covered, you know, the the true nature of that being covered up and things like that, where it's sort of like a pretty narrow scope. It's not something wildly far-fetched, like Bill Gates wants to inject you with a microchip in order to like control your brain and or kill you or keep you from reproducing or somehow it's, there's just many weird ideas piled on top of one another there. But genuine conspiracy is something like much narrower in scope. And the kind of thinking that can uncover that is what they call conventional thinking, which is using critical thinking and like rigorous inquiry, but also not over-interpreting all data you find in service of the theory, right, which is where you get conspiracy theories, finding like things that are wildly unconnected and connecting them or not using like really established methods of researching, but kind of going on these, you know, weird, deep internet dives and stuff like that. I think there is actually a lot of conventional thinking, ironically, in the anti-diet space where it might seem like there's a, it's a really unconventional approach to weight and health, but actually like, there's rigorous research happening. There's people looking at data in critical ways, thinking critically, not over-interpreting, not sort of making wild leaps. And so, you know, versus like in the anti-vax space, unfortunately, there is a lot of that kind of conspiracy, conspiracist thinking there, which is, you know, making these wild connections and, and things that don't have scientific backing. And people like Andrew Wakefield, who were sort of like the basis of the movement at first being totally discredited and having their research really undermined and retracted. And of course, then the conspiracy mindset with that is to say, well, they pushed him out and they retracted his stuff because he was onto something real and big pharma wanted to shut it down to like keep their profits or whatever. Yeah. And it also just reinforces again, us to investigate our own biases in things of like the way that we look at information, the way that we seek out information. And, you know, we're always going to gravitate towards brands or content that does validate our own previously held beliefs. So I think just being aware of that and being aware of, you know, when you are investigating something that has to do with your health or that has to do with, you know, a choice that you're making about your health, are you just constantly seeking out information to kind of confirm what you're hoping to confirm? Or are you pulling from a broad range of who's to say what's the responsible brand or publisher about a certain topic? But yeah, like, are you pulling from, you know, a larger pool of evidence than just things that are validating the view that you already have and understanding how the content that you're consuming might have done the same. You know, you had talked about before seeing some headlines or, or seeing some stories that you look into it and it's like, okay, that does seem like they are commenting on a valid study that just came out. It does seem like there's kind of an angle. Maybe it's telling you that bacon's going to kill you or something and they're linking to a study. So it seems pretty legit. Maybe bacon's going to kill you, <laughs> but then understanding like, okay, are they telling the whole story? Like, digging into that research and just kind of taking a, a bit more of critical lens. It's hard with conversations like the anti-vax conversation to not say that it's not just like a personal health choice, you know, in some things, I think too, if you have a conspiratorial worldview and you feel like, well, I'm just making this decision for me with something like being anti-vax, 
we have very good data showing how it does affect at the population level as well. So I think those conversations are just harder to have than just say, oh, well, do what you feel is right. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's other people are being affected by your choices as well. So it's not just, you know, you do you. And I think, unfortunately, the way that our healthcare system is today and the way that like the internet and social media have influenced the discourse around health and wellness there is so much of that just like you do you like pick and choose what works for you and creating your sort of pastiche of like personalized wellness practices and things like that which you know I think on one hand like I who am I to begrudge you know I would never begrudge someone something that works for them but on the other hand I think there are a lot of things that are purported to work that are actually doing harm and that's where that's what really frustrates me both as someone who is you know a health professional now myself and a journalist covering health and also someone who has all these health conditions and has personally been through so much in trying to figure out diagnoses and treatments that worked for me and who was so susceptible at one time and, you know, even still, who knows, maybe one day I'll fall down another rabbit hole with one of these things. Like, I I feel very empathetic towards people who get kind of pulled in by these promises or feel like they have nothing else to turn to, no other options, and so are trying things that are really unproven or wild and out there and, you know, feel like that's that's the last-ditch effort because nothing else has worked. Yeah, it's something I talk about a lot in my book that I don't think that anyone should feel bad or dumb or any or silly, you know, for trying these things or for liking these things as talking specifically about things like wellness fads, supplements, things like that. The latest trend that you're seeing on TikTok around your health, I don't think that it's the fault, you know, of each person trying these things. I do think that people need to understand that this is kind of the, the wellness industry is kind of predatory in a lot of ways, because it is all about kind of commercializing wellness, commercializing how you take care of your body and giving you options that are easy and simple and have tons of promises. And I think the target audience for a lot of these things are people that really can't afford to keep trying things that don't work, honestly. Like they're often targeting people that maybe don't have access to a primary care provider who, and that's why they're looking for something that's easier at home. They're maybe targeting people that are not able to, or maybe are uninsured or underinsured and are thinking that this is an option that's going to be the same as, you know, what they might get with traditional medical care. And sometimes if it is actually increasing accessibility of any kind of, you know, certain health access, like that's great often it is, you know, over-promising. And so that's what really frustrates me too. Like, I don't obviously think that people shouldn't try things that they want to try. If you want to experiment again with something, it's more so if you are trying a wellness fad um, or trying a supplement or trying some DIY health thing in lieu of getting the care that you need. And again, that might be because you don't have access to the care that you need. So that's more of a systemic problem than a personal one. It's not you know, a personal failing by any means, but that's where I think wellness fads get into the more dangerous territory. I agree. And I mean, especially thinking about supplements too, I think it's worth 
mentioning and highlighting to people that supplements are a largely unregulated industry. Like they're not regulated before they go to market. The, you know, regulators can only pull them from the market because of a law that was put into place in 1990s based largely on supplement industry lobbying. The FDA can't regulate these these things before they go to market and can only pull them off if there's enough like consumer complaints to make them look into something. And the regulation there is is so sparse, I think both because of lack of funding for that sort of regulation and perhaps more problematically, there are people who have worked in the supplement industry and been supplement industry like lobbyists and um, worked for you know, supplement industry groups that then go into regulation at the FDA and then go back to supplement industry. There's a lot of cross-pollination there. So super problematic. But it's been interesting, like, talking to some journalists about my new book and, you know, some of these ideas. And, like, I've had a couple people ask me about various diet supplements recently. And I mentioned this idea that the supplement industry is barely regulated. And they were sort of floored, like, you know, even journalists reporting in this space didn't realize this. And I think this is something that like the general public really has very little awareness of. I think it's super dangerous and super potentially harmful because there are things that end up in supplements like literal drugs, you know, that nobody knows about until something you know, some something gets reported to the FDA and then it's like comes out that, oh, this adrenal supplement actually has thyroid hormone in it. And that's why it feels like it's working or it has steroids, yeah, yeah. you know, like it's it's wild. Yeah. And I think that that also just shows like kind of our mindset around um, quote unquote mainstream, you know, medical care versus something that's maybe more woo woo or, or something or, or, you know, supplements or alternative remedies because as much as I can, of course, understand the distrust with pharmaceutical industries and mainstream medical care, there are studies, there are research and claims to back up the claims of the FDA regulated, FDA approved medications. Whereas with these supplements, you don't actually know what's in them. You know what the marketers are saying is in them. And so that's just like an interesting thing that like, because this has really safe and conversational packaging and has a nice feel to it. And it feels like this is something that is supposed to help you more than, or in a more empathetic way than mainstream medical care. But like, does it have any research to back it up or any regulation for you to know what you're putting in your body? Right. Like I, I definitely empathize with people who are concerned about the pharmaceutical industry's influence too, because I've seen the problematic nature of that influence in the weight loss and, and diet industry. And also I think, you know, for all its problems, like it's regulated. The pharmaceutical industry is regulated and things have to be shown to be effective and safe before they go to market and, you know, look at bumped back for further research if they're not versus supplements that claim to be quote unquote natural. And like you said, it sort of like has a nice feel to it. It's like it feels safer to people. And I think that's the marketing. That's the way that they sort of hook you is like, it doesn't feel like a drug, even though there might actually be literal drugs in what you're taking. Right. And I think understanding that like all natural is marketing. Like that's also even just the term natural on a label isn't regulated. So that is just as shocking to me too, that like anything that you see on the front packaging 
of anything, whether it's probiotics or supplements or skincare, that is marketing and they can put whatever they want on there. So I think just understanding that, that you can still have like a a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about a product. And I certainly have too. And then I tried it and it it either worked or didn't work, but it's more understanding that the marketing is not necessarily what you should be looking into if you're really trying to decide, is this something that belongs on or in or near my body? It should be, where is the evidence behind the claims that they're making? Well, yeah, thinking about that too, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like how certain things become wellness fads while others don't. Because I've noticed that we have these fads that in some ways kind of keep getting recycled in different forms, but also that, you know, there might be something that is kind of low key, you know, popular in like naturopathic circles or whatever, but it might not rise to the level of wellness fad for years. And then suddenly it's everywhere. Do you have a sense of how that happens? I mean, I think a few things I would say the first like media, the media does play a huge role there. Like there's such a fine line to working in a space between wanting to debunk something like the current wellness fad that's trending, but also knowing that you're giving that trend more airtime and you're allowing that kind of snowball into the zeitgeist. We actually had a role when I was at self after a while that we wouldn't debunk, you know, a, a garbage wellness trend if they were really niche. Like if say our friends and family, you know, outside of New York City and LA hadn't heard of them yet. If this didn't seem like this was something that was super pervasive, we just, you know, wouldn't write a post on, oh no, don't buy into that just to enter that conversation because it really was, like you said at the beginning of the call, like misinformation often does travel faster just because you see it more. You have that availability bias. So I think just weighing it, the media weighing in in a responsible lens is is one huge thing. From a personal perspective and just kind of covering the space for a long time, I would say that the things that I noticed that usually became wellness trends were things that had a huge list of benefits attributed to them. Again, not necessarily saying that those were all evidence-based, but something that someone said that this can, you know, affect every one of your health system, any one of your systems in your body, which is again, usually your first red flag, but something like celery juice, like turmeric, like probiotics. These are ones that we saw kind of rise to the top recently. Um, Even though of course, like turmeric has been being used for so many different uses in different cultures for forever, but making it this wellness fad of like, add it to your latte. And now your latte is healthy was something that was like, where did this come from? And I think it is, you know, from people, whoever those people are that have a lot of influence usually on the internet, attributing just a ton of benefits to something. And that's something being something that doesn't really require a ton of behavior change on your part, taking a supplement or drinking a drink first thing in the morning, like it doesn't change your life in a huge way, or, I mean, it doesn't require a ton of behavior change. So I think it catches on because it has kind of that, like, why not factor? People think like, well, why not? Like, what's the harm? So I think that that was something I saw. And, you know, once something has that halo effect, it seems like it doesn't really matter if there's any like real science to it at that point to some people, because it might, you might be getting benefits just from participating in this thing, you know, and seeing yourself as a person who drinks celery juice first thing in the morning or a person who puts turmeric in their latte, like, The placebo effect is very real too. And again, not to say that that is what's at stake for every wellness trend or anything like this, but I think that 
these trends kind of catch on when they don't require a lot from you, but you think that you might get a lot of benefits from them. That's really interesting. And I feel like it, like the marketing of it does kind of make it seem like it's this one magic thing. It's, it's almost like the magic pill, right? Like, you know, I think a lot of um, wellness culture and alternative medicine criticizes mainstream or conventional medicine for being pill popping or pill pushing, right? It's like, take this pill, you'll fix your symptoms, and it doesn't get to the root cause. That's sort of the going line about conventional medicine. And yet, I think there's a similar spirit in how a lot of food cures or even like elimination diets, like I've actually seen low FODMAP be that for some people too, where it's like, you know, cut the, you know, do this difficult elimination diet or whatever, but then it's going to fix all of these symptoms. It's going to have these effects across all of these different body systems. And, or, you know, even if it is just something like drink this drink in the morning first thing and all of your ills will be cured or whatever. There's like an accumulation of those things because the type of person or the, you know, the person who's susceptible to that, right, or who's in a place where they're vulnerable to that is when I speak from experience here, you know, as as being that person in different points of my life is also vulnerable to many other things selling that solution. And then so suddenly it becomes I'm not only drinking this thing first thing in the morning, but I'm also doing these 10 to 20 other daily behaviors that are supposed to be like one magic thing. And it sort of piles up to where I think it can take over people's lives. And that's where like the concept of orthorexia, I think, comes in. But I think even people who don't really identify with the idea of orthorexia, which I didn't when I was very much in it, you know, I actually wrote a brief blog post about it back in like 2006 for chow i was blogging for this this food magazine i came across a piece about orthorexia and posted something about it and you know totally didn't register that's what was going on for me right so i think it's it's easy to sort of miss that that's what's happening when you're accumulating all these different behaviors and wellness practices and and you know being susceptible to all these wellness fads yeah and it also like sometimes aligns your identity with a certain group or identity, you know, kind of our, our desire to fit in to different groups or to align ourselves kind of with the pack for safety, for community. You know, I think a lot of times you see these wellness fads take off within certain groups or communities like keto, you know, diet being big in the CrossFit community or like biohacking in Silicon Valley. I think there's also an aspect of this that is wanting to align with a certain identity. And so you're changing kind of your behaviors in that way. And so again, who's to say if that one behavior caused, you know, X, Y, Z benefits, or if it was kind of, like you said, an accumulation of many of them of aligning yourself with a certain group that made you act, behave, feel, think differently. Yeah. I mean, I also think too about the um, idea of regression to the mean, you know, that like over time, people's symptoms are going to wane naturally. Like that's the case for many different diseases or even for like autoimmune conditions of which I have a couple. It's like you have flares and then remission and flares and remission sort of without really doing anything. Um, And you can have, you can be on medication and have that happen, or you can not be on medication and have that happen. And so when you're not on medication, often the flares are worse. So you know, there's this sort of cyclical nature to a lot of symptoms. And I think the marketing of wellness culture really does a great job of taking credit for the remissions or the the waning of symptoms and like 
has all these ways of deflecting blame for when the symptoms come back. It's like you didn't do it hard enough or you didn't do it long enough or you didn't take a high enough dose or you have to add this other thing or you have to, you know, spin around three times while you're drinking it or whatever it is. (laughs) Right. But again, I I just feel like, again, like the autoimmune disease community too is again, like a, a community that is targeted so often by like predatory wellness practices. I think for that reason, because that target consumer is somebody who is like at your wits end, like you've tried everything you feel like or are being dismissed by your medical providers. You just want something to work. You do have that like, why not factor? So I think just, you know, really being discerning of the messages that you're exposing yourself to when you are at that like vulnerable state. Um, but also the things that you do choose to spend your time and and money and resources on because just because something is not part of mainstream medical culture, you know, just because something says it's natural or alternative uh, does not mean that it is necessarily going to be safer or going to be, you know, that magic pill. Totally. Very well said. Well, I'm curious as sort of a final question, just how, what would you leave people with as some ways of spotting misinformation online and, you know, especially on social media and protecting themselves against this predatory wellness culture um, targeting that happens? So one of my favorite tips that I always go back to is this idea of looking out for fear-based finger pointing and fear-mongering in these wellness fads and just even wellness companies, like in their branding and their marketing. Um, What I mean by fear-based finger pointing is that their whole marketing strategy kind of hinges on like, this thing that you've been doing is killing you. Or like, this thing is toxic. Our thing is better. Our thing is natural. And we're transparent. We get you. You We have have science. You know, we are built by women or, or something that they're just trying to get at. Like, we're better. What you've been using is harmful. And not to say that they don't necessarily have an argument sometimes, you know, sometimes they are very much in an industry where it's like, yeah, there should have been better research in that industry or better regulation in that industry. But sometimes there's not, and it's just a lot of marketing. And I think a a good example of this is like the all natural or like organic tampons and like saying like the regular tampons are like, who knows what's in them. It's like, that's actually a a pretty regulated industry (laughs) and they do have to pass multiple checks in the manufacturing process and all of that. And yes, there were some shady practices back in the day, but we've allegedly eliminated those. And if you're not having any issues and any sensitivity, um, you know, your tampon's not killing you. And so I think we see that a lot with skincare. We see it a lot with supplements and just kind of anything that has that all natural label and I think this really can be, you know, said the anti-vax movement too, to some extent, like it's a lot of preying on people's fears that this thing that they've been, you know, unknowingly or knowingly putting their body or putting into their body uh, is harming them and that they just, you know, didn't know better, but now they do. So I think that is a, a huge red flag to look out for if the whole marketing kind of hinges on like finger pointing of this thing that you've been doing is wrong. Or anything that just kind of like makes you feel like crap when you're reading it. And it's kind of about making you feel insecure or, you know, highlighting some aspect of your body that needs changing because their product or the 
you know, angle of their story that they're going after is around putting you in that vulnerable state that you do kind of feel insecure about this thing already. So anything that makes you feel like shit or makes you feel like what you've been doing is killing you, even though you have no evidence to state that, uh, is probably a red flag. And I would do a little bit more digging, be a little bit more discerning of that. I think that's great advice. I love the idea too, of just like being aware of how you feel when you're consuming something that's been such a helpful guiding force for me in terms of connecting to my body and connecting to, you know, how the anxiety might be getting triggered by certain headlines or certain ways of framing things and stuff like that. Cause I think there, there's a real difference between offering a solution or something that's helpful for a problem that exists and offering something really valuable versus kind of playing on people's fears and saying that like this product is the one and the only thing that can solve your problem. Yeah. And like you said, if you've been scrolling through your feed and realizing that there are a whole lot of stories from a particular brand that are their handle that is often something that you're either clicking on and then getting anxious about or like scrolling past because you're like, oh my gosh, I, I can't even read that right now. Like it's probably time to unfollow that brand. <laughs> like you do not need to be subjecting yourself to those kind of messages all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Unfollowing is such a great tool for keeping yourself less affected by those things. Oh yeah. Team unfollow. <laughs> yeah. Or team delete your social media as, as I'm on now. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a, that's a far bridge for many people and <laughs> I haven't actually deleted mine. I just don't spend any time on it, but cause it still feels like it, I have to be there, you know, like there's some amount of um, necessity, but, but yeah, I think whatever you can do to kind of expose yourself to that stuff less is helpful. Yeah, sadly, you can't just get away from those ads on the subway. Oh, <laughs> They're like this thing that you need that you didn't know you needed for this thing on your body that you didn't know you were supposed to be embarrassed about. Right. <laughs> it's, it's with you for your whole 45 minute ride. <laughs> yeah, you can't even get away in the real world. It's, uh, it's a challenge. Well, thank you so much, Casey. This is really lovely and would love to know where people can find you and learn more about your work and uh, get your book. Yes. Thank you so much, Christy. I am so honored that you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Casey Guerin. And you can find my book on Amazon or anywhere really that you buy books. Uh, it's probably nothing. The Stress Less Guide to Dealing with Health Anxiety, Wellness Fads, and Overhyped Headlines. I love it. And it's such a great title too, because uh, I think many of us have the experience of being like, okay, it's probably nothing but what if it's not? <laughs> but what if it's not? That's my internal monologue always. So it was kind of the first <laughs> title I gravitated towards. I love it. Well, thank you again so much. It's great talking with you. Thank you so much. So that's our show. Thanks so much to Casey Guerin for being here. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. You can also get new episodes delivered to your email inbox every other week by visiting rethinkingwellness.substack.com. If you have any questions for me about wellness and diet culture, you can send them in at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in my weekly newsletter or possibly even on this podcast at some point in the future. This episode was brought to you by my upcoming book, The Wellness Trap, which will be out on April 25th. 
You can learn more and pre-order now at christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. And after you pre-order, you can upload your proof of purchase for a special bonus Q&A with me at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer and administrative support from Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Album art by Tara Jacoby and theme song by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I hope you don't come across too many fear-mongering nutrition headlines. <laughs> <laughs>